Hey everybody out there in the galaxy, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all into all the details of that galaxy far, far away. We talk about characters, we talk about ships, places, things, concepts, we talk a little bit about everything. And my fellow political correspondent here is Ross. Yeah, you know, we figured with uh, the United States being in the middle of their own uh, political upheaval that it would Mm -hmm. be a good time to talk about some politicians in the world of Star Wars. And then, of course, we couldn't end just there. So with being in the excitement of The Mandalorian Season 2 premiering, we decided we are going to throw in a Mandalorian topic today and for the next seven shows going forward. Yeah, as we go through the season of uh, season two, um, chapters, uh, what would it be, 10 through 8, 18, 10 through 18? Nine through seven. Oh, sorry, nine through 17, my bad. Nine. As we go through this, we're just, The Mandalorian is what Star Wars is talking about right now, and it's amazing. So we'll be doing topics. um, They may be related directly to the episode we just saw. Uh, They may be related to stuff we saw in episode one. The whole point about it is we're just going to stitch a a topic into every episode that is um, something doing with what is most important in Star Wars at the time of the recording, the release of the second season of Mandalorian. Absolutely. So today we are going to start out by talking about Chancellor Valorum, the last chancellor to complete a term at the head of the Galactic Republic. And then we'll talk about the last chancellor whose term ended in a different way. He didn't relinquish (laughs) power. He became a different type of power. We're talking about the emperor, but before he was the emperor, when he was just Senator Palpatine. Yes, his early story. And then finally, we're going to talk about the marshal, the sheriff of Mos Pelgo, Freetown, from Chuck Wendig's Aftermath novel, and more recently, The Mandalorian, Mm -hmm. Cobb Vanth. So I would say that, as usual... Spoilers ahead, but definitely watch Mando Chapter 9 before you listen to this. For sure, for sure. Um, We'll warn you again, but please listen to us. You definitely want to see it in person first. Oh, absolutely. All right, and with that, let's get started. political discourse about me about where should we start let's let's start with the first supreme chancellor we as star wars audiences meet okay so you must mean finis valorum we originally meet him in episode one the phantom menace and he is played by terrence stamp yeah he is uh a uh actor who we've seen all over the place mac what are some of your uh favorite terrence roles um, Do you have any that come to mind? Well, the thing about it is he's 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 partially one of those data guys. Like uh-huh. he's like like he's one of the people that came off the assembly line of the wonderful British acting schools and is just basically be like, we need someone who looks like fancy. We need someone who has presence. We need someone who has, you know, we give him a script and like in fifteen minutes he can deliver it. That's <laughs> the kind of people that 
British acting produces. And so he's in tons and tons of stuff. And I mean, like that presence I'm talking about is definitely what he brings to fitness. Because again, the second you see this guy, you can kind of tell that this is, well, I, I guess you'd say three things about, about his performance right off the bat is one, you could tell that this is a guy who's stressed, <laughs> like the, the weight <laughs> of this job has started taking its toll Two, this is a guy who naturally oozes decorum. Like he's who you, I guess he's the kind of person we would expect was running the old Republic. Someone who seems mostly trustworthy is probably a political operative and can do some stuff, you know, as far as like, you know, he's capable of, uh, uh, moving political wheels, but he's generally an honest person. Yeah, he feels like a politician, right? I mean, yes. that when you hear him and you see him, the way he postures and the way he interacts with people around him, he feels and acts and imitates a politician so well in his uh, sort of natural behaviors. Now, the other movie that I always think of him from Whenever okay. I think of him. So he's got a couple. I mean, Superman and Superman well, see, 2 would be his biggest, right? You, I say, but when you, I when think you asked me to tell, say the name, I'm like, well, it's General Zod. But I don't want to go there because that has nothing to do with the presence I'm about to talk about. Not <laughs> at all. But I mean, is are those his, is that what he's most well known for? Pro, well, at least to American audience? Well, I would probably say that's his probably his most mainstream performance. Like another place I really like him from is he has a good little bit role in... Alien Nation. I don't oh, know if you've ever no, I've that. never seen that. No, Alien Nation's a really great show that probably hasn't aged that well, but is basically like a, a, a slave ship of aliens lands outside of Los Angeles, hmm. and they don't have there's there's no masters, there's no nothing, and so basically the world goes well. We don't know what to do with you. There's like ten thousand of you. Hmm. Um. All right, we're just going to sign it to court. You can live in L.A. now. <laughs> so so they just, they're emigrated into yeah. Los Angeles. And it's just the, the it, it's, it's I think, a really earnest, though probably dated, um, conversation about racism by using a totally separate culture that has nothing to do with any Earth culture, can't really offend anyone because it's aliens, literally. But them trying to deal with ghettos deal with uh institutional you know racism deal with uh people calling for segregated schools like all of that stuff and it started with an 88 movie and then there's a um tv show that followed up and mm. like i said Terrence stamp has this great thing of representing just sort of like this idea that amongst these slaves the masters are in there somewhere it's this conspiracy of they're trying to hide amongst their flock because well if anyone remembers who they were, they're probably going to be in real big trouble. And Terrence Stamp plays one of these sort of blue bloods of the aliens, which was good. Interesting. I have never, uh, well, I guess I have heard of it, but definitely never seen any of it, the film or the show. Uh, so good. you'd recommend it, huh? I would recommend okay. it. Okay. Uh, I mean, so besides Superman, which obviously I have seen, uh, even though it has been a while, I should revisit those. Um the only thing I really can say of note that I've seen him in since that I remember is he had a little bit of a role in the Jim Carrey movie Yes Man. Do you remember that movie? It also had a uh, Zoe Deschanel. Vaguely, I don't know if I actually saw it though. Now that you're mentioning it, um, it's a it's a it's a pretty funny movie, all things considered. Uh, you know, compared to some other recent Jim Carrey movies, so uh, 
hey, if you're looking for just kind of like some fun, positive laughing, it's uh, not a bad one to maybe check out. Oh, I should say he play. Uh, he plays like a Terrence uh, plays a uh, like a motivational speaker who inspires Jim Carrey to become a more positive person. Oh, that's it's pretty, pretty good. good. He has, you know, a couple of funny scenes and he, he, you know, a decent role in the film. Yeah. I mean, but just to put it out, like, again, he's in a bunch. Again, he's one of that guys. You've seen him in movies, I'm sure. But like mm-hmm. he was in Wall Street. He was in Young Guns. He was in. Oh, right. I forgot. He's he's one of the characters in uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, um, which that's a trip. Uh <laughs> Bowfinger, Red Planet. Oh, remember Red Planet? Remember yes. Remember somebody had two Mars Val movies? Kilmer, right? Uh, yes. Is that Red Planet? Uh, I think so. Val Kilmer I definitely saw that Carrie in the theater. Carrie Moss, I think, were the drivers for that. Definitely saw that in the theater. Um, you that know, good. He's just been, he's been in a in a bunch of, of I guess, little stuff. Uh, wanted, Get Smart. He's oh, yes yeah. Man. He's saw in wanted. Valkyrie, Adjustment Bureau. Oh, saw Valkyrie, yeah. Uh, yeah, like I said, he's just, he's he's around. Yeah. He's around. He's he's great. So let's talk about him as Valorum now. Let's do that. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, you know, we really don't get to see him in a whole lot of Star Wars content. We see him here, and we're going to see him in one episode of The Clone Wars, and that is the bulk of it. Uh, so let's talk about the first Supreme Chancellor who we get to meet. Um, and really the sort of second to last Supreme Chancellor before the fall of the Republic. Um, yeah, one would know, argue the last um, full Chancellor because he completes his term. Legitimate. Well, that's fair, too. <laughs> that would be the other thing yeah. I would use. <laughs> well, yeah, depending on how much you want to. Um, because uh, <laughs> because we're pretty sure that that that, um, that Palpatine gets elected completely legally and uncorrupt, right? Legally, maybe uncorrupt. Uh, we're gonna talk about that in a minute. So, but first, let's talk about Valorum. So, what do we know about him? He's born on Coruscant. Yeah, he's to the Valorum family. <laughs> yes, of course. I know you like to say that. I, I love. It's my favorite character. Yeah. Uh, so he's born on Coruscant to the Valorum family, and most of this comes from character dictionaries and stuff like that. They're, yeah, it's mostly like yeah, data big en- entries. Like this is just sort of yeah. biography stuff. Yeah, there really isn't a whole lot. A prominent notable family uh, knows he wants to be from a young age uh, a chancellor well, involved in politics. Yeah, you know, cause... kind of born and bred for the role he ends up working into. Uh, to put it in like the perspective of like American politics, it's like the Kennedys, like it's this dynasty family because mm-hmm. they trace their origins back to the first Supreme Chancellor of the Republic. Um, and so they've produced a few. And so like at a young age, Phineas is like, that's what I, I that's my goal. Mm-hmm. I, I want to mm-hmm. I want to follow in those footsteps and I want to be the top dog. Yes, and he achieves it. I mean, he yeah. does get there, and it is noted um, by Palpatine, actually, uh, that he is essentially a politician. He is the type of person who keeps things the status quo, keeps things moving forward. Definitely not a bad guy, does good things for the galaxy, but he is just your typical politician who allows He's- the underworld to continue, allows the you know the the dredge of it all to be there. And he will not drastically change anything. He's the perfect person because of his sort of 
slow political, you know, iceberg nature. Uh, I don't want to say apathetic because well, I don't think he's apathetic. I, well, here's the thing: remember that we are not. We're talking about an unreliable ni- narrator here, though. In the well, sense that's that- true, but we also he have to deal with what we see in the film, which is like um, uh, Natalie, or I'm sorry, Amidala going. Where are the ambassadors? They they should be here already. And all Valorum does is send two Jedi. And then when their shuttle never returns, they right. just... You know, he he's well, not a fast-moving guy. Well, what I'm trying to say is, like, I believe uh, Valorum represents what the Republic has become in a sense of it is not evil and it's not fully corrupted yes. it's just been mired that's absolutely it's, it's, correct what I, what I see Valorum is is Valorum is a good administrator he's not bringing any new policies out he's not trying to change anything in the Republic he is just the steady hand on the rudder keeping it going in the same direction he can as much as possible yes and I don't I think that it's an easy charge to throw at him of like well you weren't fighting the corruption you weren't fighting the infighting yeah. you weren't fighting the slowing, you know, yes. the energy running out of the um, of the Republic. But I also think it's one of those things of like, unlike other figures we meet in Republic politics, I don't think he is contributing to it either. That's he's, definitely the vibe we milk get. He's toast. He's a lame duck. Yes, that is <laughs> yeah, very much the vibe we get. He is, uh, it's not that he's struggling to stay afloat, but one small leg cramp might do him in. Right, and-, <laughs> and Palpatine sees that essentially. You know, that's what we're that's what we're gonna get at here when we talk about Palpatine. But we do see Valorum one other time after his tenure as Supreme Chancellor is over. We do during the Clone War. So let's talk about it. It comes in season six. Uh, so you know the lost, lost episodes. episodes. Uh, they'll always be called that in my heart, even though we have a season seven now. I think that's what we've got. Well, I think they also feel a lot more scattershot, whereas seven does feel like a season again. That's true. Cause they very are. And the episode we're going to talk about is a one-off. It's called The Lost Ones, mm-hmm. and it is about the investigation of Sifo-Dyas. Obi-Wan and Anakin pick the trail back up. And uh, meanwhile, Palpatine and Dooku are working to make sure that it stays covered. Yeah, and so this is essentially uh, kind of asserting into canon the canon answer for what was going on with sifo Because the second episode two came out, sifo becomes this huge black hole that fans want to fill in mm-hmm. of who is this guy. Um, and what we essentially establish is um, the facts we know from, from episode two strengthened a little bit where Sifo-Dyas is a Jedi master who sees a calamity decides to go and conscript a um an entire army from the Kaminoans so hires them all for that and it's kind of established in this episode that it seems like the Sith are like oh we we want that maybe we could again I think it's still vague on did we get sifo to do that for us, or did we see sifo did that and we're going to take it? Either way, they end up hiring the Pikes to kill him. <laughs> yes, and what really is important here is where does Valorum fit into the story? Mm-hmm. Well, Valorum had sent, essentially, his aide, Silman, along with sifo who was there with him, when he was inevitably shot down by the Pikes. Mm-hmm. So essentially there's this story, this cover-up, that sifo was on Felucia when he died, and his body was destroyed, and that there was someone else with him, which leads Yoda to question, 
Chancellor Palpatine, who is now in charge, because the file on Sifo-Dyas is locked by the Chancellor's office. Yeah. So when he meets Chancellor Palpatine about this, Palpatine says, in Tim Curry's voice, by the way, in season six, which is great, <laughs> Uh, you know, though that was before my time, you must seek Valorum. And when Yoda's leaving the office, there's this really great moment where Obi-Wan communicates with him and he goes, you know, were you successful talking with the chancellor? And Yoda goes about as successful as I usually am. And it's just such this great moment of like Yoda and the Jedi realize there are things amiss Right. But they can't put their finger on it. It's just another good moment that emphasizes that. But it's immediately after that. Yoda goes right. to meet with Valorum, and Valorum tells him about his aide, Silman, who was with them, who up until this point, no one had known about. No one had mm-hmm. known that this other person was with Sifo-Dyas. So that is Valorum's only moment. He basically gives them another thread to go on. Once again, showing he was happy to work with the Jedi. He's not trying to cover anything up. Ooh. He was once again a kind of very straightforward neutral guy who just played his cards and, on the table. And I think from a galactic perspective, like zooming out, I think it actually shows that Valorum wanted to be a better person. Cause I think when he asked the Jedi to send their representatives to dispute, dispute on Naboo, I feel that's him like cutting through red tape. Cause the yeah. Jedi are sort of extra and they're yeah. known to be these peacekeepers and yeah. negotiators and judges. That's fair. And my suspicion is, there's not that many of them. So I'm assuming the chancellor's office just says like, oh, there's a trade dispute. Can you guys send some people? Like, I assume that is like him going to a member of the Jedi Council and saying, hey, can I ask a favor of you? Um, this thing is the, the Trade Federation has the courts locked up on this for yeah. maybe forever. Can you send your representatives and see if we can get a peaceful negotiation of this done sooner than later? Yeah. I don't want this blockade to become a humanitarian crisis i think you're absolutely right other than i disagree about the fact of like he's like having to pull a favor like the jedi are an official arm of the republic no no, no. No. and their job is to keep and negotiate peace so i don't mean that in the political sense of a favor i I mean the fact of, uh, of like i suspect it's not like hey dash off a memo to the jedi council i assume it is valorum as the chancellor asking for that favor because we see that he's part of the same well we established that he's part of the same political party as the previous um chancellor which is score coplin i'm probably butchered Ooh, that i name. don't know how to say it either. score all right now i'm gonna have it in my notes score calipani score calipani um and <laughs> that when me. senator palpatine ascends he with the other naboo delegates join that that pol- that ruling party so they're all connected. So what I'm saying is I feel that reading between the tea leaves that Valorum is somewhat personally interested in, in what happens to Naboo. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. That, 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 I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And I just, like I said, I, there's, we think that the, what the Jedi are like, what, 10,000 strong at this point or something like mm, that. Yeah. It, it's some relatively small numbers so like i said i just don't think you send jedi on a normal trade dispute unless someone who is got some moving and shaking says yeah, yeah bumps that up on the duty mm-hmm. roster if you mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah and we know it's, and it's not supposition it's I, I don't, sure we don't well we can one thing that i think is important because there's one other bigger possibility that we can rule out and that's that 
Palpatine had a hand in sending the oh, Jedi to get the war started because when Palpatine is communicating at the beginning with the Trade Federation, he says the Chancellor should have never gotten them involved in this. Right. And, and so maybe to that's your, where my... And to your point, yeah, he does specifically say the Chancellor, who is Valorum. So I, I, could, I think that's a... I think we could nail it to the wall and say that's a valid, at least, theory. And the last thing I'll say is he's a much more complicated character in Legends because we had a lot more books written around yeah, episode Cloak one. Yeah, Cloak of Deception and... would have been a big one. That was actually, I think, where his first name was maybe first revealed. I think revealed. that sounds right. Uh, but, boy, I read that I, a long time ago. And I think the like one 2000? thing I found... I think the one thing that made my eyebrow cock the most during that episode was like, oh, well, let's contact Valorum. He's alive? (laughs) Palpatine didn't kill him? He's, like, killed two or three weeks after Palpatine ascends in a car accident. Like, like he is, the second he's not Chancellor, Palpatine makes him a dead man. And it was so weird for, like, oh, he he gets to go to retirement. Good for Valorum. (laughs) He's still got guards around him. He's still got Senate guards around him. still got Secret Service, yeah. Yeah, that's very nice. Those blue ones, right? (laughs) Well, let's talk about the man next who replaced Valorum. Mac, you ready to talk about Senator Palpatine? Let's do it. With a vote of no confidence from the monarch from the planet of Naboo, Chancellor Valorum loses his power and Chancellor Palpatine rises into power to begin the fall of the Galactic Republic. They've been talking about making me the Chancellor. Surprise to me, if you're sure. (laughs) So what we're going to talk about next is everything that happens to our good buddy Chief Palpatine before that moment. So what yeah. is everything that happens that we know of in canon? It's true. This is the future <laughs> is always in motion because I know there's going to be more one day. I am so confident. That is one of the things I can most confidently say is that there will one day be a canon Palpatine story that will bring a lot of his stuff back. Yeah, I could definitely see a book that's just called Palpatine or just called yeah. Sheev where yeah. it's just like, hey, well, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, it literally like, no, I know Sheev in the sense I of know. like, like, Mm-hmm. He's one of the most interesting and captivating figures in all of Star Wars, and he is responsible for essentially every inciting incident in all three trilogies. Mm-hmm. You know, he is the most important uh, dramatic axis in which the oh, entire absolutely. main story of Star yeah. Wars, the Skywalker saga, yeah. turns. I mean, hey, his daughter brings balance to the Force. Sorry, granddaughter. His clone... His Relative. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, no, but I mean, it is, it is a... It's his story. It's, it, he is the, he is the primary antagonist of the entire galaxy. Absolutely. Um, And when we were researching for this topic, found out just how little, uh, well, the funny thing is how little there is, period. Because even in Legends, this was kind of like loose. There was more with like... Well, Plagueis. remember, Legends has the Plagueis book. Well, it does, and- but even that is... 
let's put it this but way. But that is Palpatine's story. It's all in there. Senator Palp... Senator Palp... Chief Palpatine is yeah. born in Naboo to family. Yeah. They are influential. Sure. Um, And he's, at a young age, decides to join the diplomatic corps. Nowhere in anywhere do we actually fill in what, like, Sheev is before he's, like, of age in many ways. Oh, you're looking at me really funny. Did the Plagueis book go that young? I don't recall. I, I mean, it's it I rem- starts in his teenage years, doesn't it? Well, that's what I mean. It's, it yeah. starts with, well, on Naboo. You're talking about, on Naboo, like, childhood. Like, on Naboo, is he killing, like, space slugs with a rock? Is that what you're wondering? No. I'm saying like, we a... don't really get any information about like kind of who his family is. Yeah, okay. what his upbringing yeah, was. I don't. Yeah, we that I do think you're right. What yeah. was we essentially meet him at the coming of age, which on Naboo is much younger than here, because yeah. I mean you can be the global monarch at age 14. Yeah, which is young, but apparently not young enough to make that illegitimate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we see him go through, I guess, sort of a story we know a little bit from Amidala. We kind of know what the political culture is on Naboo of yes. you're kind of tapped at a young age. If you have an acumen or an interest yeah. or your family is um, kind of pointing you in that direction, there are early apprenticeships and schools designed for discourse and diplomacy mm-hmm. and stuff that you can join. And so we assume he's sort of like uh, Amadala has joined like the diplomatic corps. He's trying to learn what it means to be a politician yeah. and be a person that helps the galactic and local um, governance. Absolutely, yes. He is the he is a born and bred, just like Valorum, mm-hmm. uh, born and bred politician. Someone who, uh, well, here's the thing though: Valorum is a born politician. Yes, Palpatine is a born manipulator. Yes. Maybe that's the distinction I want to draw in saying that Palpatine, while he finds his avenues through politics, mm-hmm. while we don't have this complete story yet that eventually I think we will one day have. I agree with you on that. Yeah, I think we are going to see that his aspirations for evil show up at a very young age. I think we will see that his force power show up at a very young age. And I will think we will eventually see that Plagueis picks him and starts training him from a very young age. Like, I think by the time he is pursuing politics, he already has an idea of what his plan is. Yeah, you feel... Just the big picture. Again, you you can... This is all supposition, but, like, you get the feeling that, like, maybe a Plegus sees this kid at some debate team or doing some early diplomatic work or just sees how cunning... This kid is and says, oh, mm, let me test his blood for metachlorians. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go check that out. Like he's yeah. got instincts that are almost petronatural because um, <laughs> the thing about it that I think you see in the the kind of building up. And I think we're going to see this really expand in what murmurs are coming around about the High Republic and its central tension of increasing this sort of classism yeah. between the core worlds and the outer rim. Hell, there's a chance we'll see. Plagueis, you know, working in the shadows in the High Republic era. He could be that old. So Because, again, rule of two, he, he's around, and he's really worked on life extinction, so there's yeah. no telling how long he's been around. You never know. It's possible. But we get the idea that Naboo is sort of from um, what I would call the suburbs of the <laughs> galaxy. They're in the mid-rim, which means That's, that they're yeah. part of the first 
um, you know, actually technically the second expansion from the core worlds, because galactic civilization likes to think it starts at the center of the galaxy, the core worlds like mm-hmm. uh, Corellia, Coruscant, Duros, these kinds of places, and expands out. And the further you get out from the galactic core, or as Luke put it, the further you get from the bright center of the galaxy, the worse it gets. Yeah. The more frontier, the less resources, the more spread out everything is from each other in mm-hmm. a literal sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so Naboo is welcome at the table of the 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 most gentrified of galactic civilization, but they're also not probably the most powerful, right? I think young is a way to, a good way to put it. I think they're, mm-hmm. you know, they feel younger, even though that planet has been settled for, you know, generations. Their civilization is very yeah. old, but compared to, yeah, their place in the yeah. galactic civilization. Yeah, right, exactly. So um, very much in the same way America is a young country, right. but for a, you know, small number of years, a hundred years, when I say small, I mean in a relative term, they had somewhat of a large worldwide political influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing, I think, here. And obviously not in exactly the same way, but the same sort of conclusions of for a moment in history, this planet, Ooh. a.k.a. this country, is on the center political stage because of something that's happening there. You know, it would have been at one point the Industrial Revolution all the way up through whatever. And here we are talking about this planet now that is in this trade blockade and they come, they go from this not known thing to this monarch speaking on the galaxy's biggest stage, upending up the, you know, this established politician uh, in a very short amount of time. And so what you're seeing is this, this small thing unseat this large thing. I think I think this is probably an overly dramatic way of reframing it, but a similar political tension to when Japan attacked Hawaii at the beginning of uh, World War II for the Americans. Mm-hmm. The Europeans were like, oh, yeah, we'll totally help you with that, but do our thing first. Like, we, we needed to go and liberate our, our European allies before yeah. they could give us the resources. And when we went to go go to Japan... Well, they were re- busy rebuilding. So they supported us as much as they could, especially our really good friends, um, but some couldn't. So it's the same kind of thing of like, hey, we understand you have this trade blockade and we really want to work on that. We get a lot of plates spinning right now. Yeah. So if you'll bear with us, we'll send some UN inspectors to check it out. The trade federations, they've been around a really long time, okay? So we gotta trust them. Yeah, they're a little rough around the edges, but they generally are doing the right thing. Like, no, they're, they're rounding our people up into camps. And when we send the UN inspector, they will verify that. So And so Palpatine sees those cracks in the wall, those yeah. issues with the Republic, and decides he is going to exploit them. And Palpatine is the one who moves the trade blockade into effect. And the yeah. reason being, the reason he chooses to make that move at the time, we recently have learned in the Queen Shadow book. Mm. Uh, so in that novel, uh, it's really great because it is not just about Amidala's rise to power. You know, it starts out on basically election night and yeah. talks about how her handmaidens are assembled. It's a fantastic story if you're it's into really episode great. one or Padme. It really, really is great. And it works its way through. But throughout the book, there are these little interludes where, you know, 
Obi-Wan is studying in the Jedi library on Coruscant and Gwygon's telling him, I feel like something is close. I feel like something is happening in the force, you know, and then Palpatine calling the Trade Federation. It is, you know, hey, it's time to start the blockade. We need to move the plan up, you know, so it shows what I like about this is in canon. It shows that Palpatine, you know, prior to his ascension is pulling the strings but it's fluid. It's not a A to B, B to C, C to D. Yeah. You know, he has a structure, I'm sure, but it's very much a he is lying in wait, waiting for the right moment to execute the next step and then the next step and then the next. Because I think one thing we, we haven't seen it specifically in a story beat, but like I think the one thing about Palpatine that is genuine, like a genuine uh, place of nobly seeking something is. Mm hmm. I think he really does find the discourse of the public disgusting, like the mired bureaucracy, yeah. the he corruption. Like I think he truly hates it. I think his whole, you know, strength through order mm -hmm. kind of view of the empire is not coming from a, I just want to tyrannically rule the universe. Like that's his fringe benefit. I think he really does think that the empire is bringing about a better quality of life for the people he considers people. And that's exactly um, what it is in yeah. the galaxy. Um, I and, agree. And I think that probably starts at a young age by finding probably when Plagueis helps him ascend to becoming the Senator of his planet and him running the discourse at the galactic Senate and just finding like probably basic, no nonsense, sensible, straightforward actions mm -hmm. being bounced around committees all over the place is probably where he forms the idea of like, you know, if someone invaded my homeland, they probably wouldn't even come for weeks. They'd have to discuss it at endless commit. That gives me an idea. <laughs> like, like, I'm assuming he, he probably really found that. And the more he gets attached to the dark side, the more that viewpoint becomes mm -hmm. domination yeah. and subjugation of people. But like, um, I, I think it's interesting that his, his dual life is he's the amicable Senator Palpatine. And I assume that is a, personality that he had that eventually it is his mask that he's pretending yes. that he's this generous and um amicable and pleasant guy like i made the joke at the beginning of like they're, they're thinking about electing me a surprise to be sure i'm like yeah probably a surprise of decades worth of planning string pulling so that when this <laughs> moment would hit you would be the guy you had the buttons already made. You knew you were going to run. You knew Bail Organa was going to be your toughest opponent. You knew. You were ready. I could see it. Yeah. And again, it, it's it's interesting that that's his mask because in the shadows of that, he is learning from his master, Darth Plagueis. In fact, one of the other stories we know about a younger Palpatine is him sort of already looking out there for his inner circle people that will when yes. he begets to his final level he, he's going to be able to do that and one of the people he meets relatively early um especially his life life is wolf tarkin he meets this young and very uh, aggressive and very um intelligent uh cadet of the solace um spacefarers academy and in meeting him he basically just 
talks to him and makes note of the fact of you seem like a young and ambitious, ambitious man. What do you what do you think about the current stuff? And sort of gets a stock of how Tarkin sees the world. And if you read the book of Tarkin, he has a very broken view of of people, a very survival of the fittest kind of way of looking at things. Yeah. And Palpatine says, that's very interesting. You know, you would do very well in the judicial branch if you wish to do that. And he basically says, no, my, my, my life, my family, we, we are, we're military stock. I'm going to stay with this. And he's like, and he's, and basically says like, well, we should keep in touch and sort of pockets this young person as someone who he can trust. And over the course of both of those men's life, they, they, they groom each other a little bit. Like, like Palpatine's empire is influenced by Tarkin's views on how a galactic military could enlist order around the galaxy. On the same time, Tarkin's one of the only people that we get to know gets to call him Sheev. <laughs> um, which yeah. is actually, that book is where we learned Palpatine's first name, which is That Sheev. is, that's the first time we heard it in the Tarkin novel. And this continues because while Palpatine is seeking out dark side s- secrets and stuff as he is building himself as Darth Sidious, he comes upon Dathomir. And with the Knight Sisters, basically finds great potential in one of their few Knight Brothers, this creature he will kind of start calling Maul. And it's great because when he finds Maul, he finds in himself, like, this is the cudgel that I need for my plan. This is the enforcer I need to to kind of run around doing the Sith stuff I can't because I'll be trapped in the Chancellor's office. Uh, this is the perfect weapon I need. And I just need to hone him a little bit more. But this terribly, you know, violent and and dark side seeped culture is the perfect stock to pull from. But if I do that, I will violate the rule of two because I'm already considering him my apprentice. Well, the rule of two must be maintained. And then he goes home and he kills Plagueis <laughs> in the night. That <laughs> is the thing we want to see the most, right? As Star yes. Wars fans, that's got to be up there is... I want that uh, brought into canon very much. I want that legend. And, and it can be put in like a dark legends book. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a, a giant thing, but like, man, I want that. Yeah. I just want that little short story of like, almost like an Edgar pa- Allan Poe poem of like, Sheev walking down the hallway, hallways <laughs> yes. of Plegas's, uh, you know, fortress and thinking of all the betrayal that's on his mind and all this, this, this master has taught him and how he's going to, use all of that to kill him and and now especially after episode 9 and to finally be the inheritor of all the sith knowledge and lore and power that he will become the vessel for the rule of two's unbroken chain that's going to be great it is and i can't wait for us to get more of this story yeah which we're both confident it's going to come yeah cuz i mean that, that's pretty much all we know, because at that point, he's got Maul. He starts training Maul. Maul becomes his weapon. He is Darsidious, has plotted all these things. And then a senator starts the chain of event in episode one that will lead to the Galactic Empire. Yes, all of the stuff we see on film, uh, you know, unfolding in The Phantom Menace is because he is pulling those strings. We see that he sends Maul to Naboo, well, sends him after the senator and then to Naboo. Mm-hmm. Uh And that is sort of the final stage of the beginning of his plan. That is what episode one is. Yeah, is the the, um, 
the mouse trap getting released. Yeah. Yeah, the, the contraption has started. Uh, okay, Mac, I feel like I'm pretty good until we get more of this story. You want to yeah. talk about a character from after Sheev's downfall next? Yeah, let's do it. Right. So, for the next eight, 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 yeah, eight, episodes, eight weeks. Yeah, we are going to be every episode featuring a Mandalorian topic because it is the biggest thing going on in Star Wars mm-hmm. at the time of this recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in season two. The first episode has come, and the second episode is imminent at the time of this recording. Uh, I am very excited. In fact, we're just going to mine right into that first episode. Episode, well. Chapter nine of The Mandalorian, season two, episode one, Mm -hmm. uh, The Marshal. And we're going to talk about The Marshal. The Marshal, the Sheriff, Cobb Vance, Vance, depending. We're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about his other appearances as well. So if you're not familiar, this character is a character who's been with us for a couple of years now in Star Wars, but this is the first time we're seeing him in live action. So as we were talking about what should be our first topic from this week's episode, we thought, why not go big and just pick our new favorite character, right? (laughs) So uh, portrayed in the Mandalorian by Timothy Oliphant and originally appearing in the first Aftermath novel by Chuck Wendig from 2015. Which blows my mind. because You didn't know that watching the episode? So I never got through the Aftermath trilogy. The first book, I just, I didn't engage very well. Uh, I really need to give them another chance. But like, yeah. Totally forgot about this being in there. (laughs) Well, uh, let's stop a minute and talk about, uh, briefly, you should absolutely read all three because while the first book is very much establishing characters and very much getting to know characters and because the whole plot is centered around like one political meeting of the remnants of the Empire. So it's not a very deep uh, story. It's all about establishing characters. But then books two and three are just really great, great stories. At the time, the thing was Aftermath felt like the big reveal of what happened after the Battle of Endor. Yeah. And it, when you read them, you realize, no, 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 th- this is just a good Star Wars story. And the first Star Wars story set in that yes. post uh, the, yeah. the Empire crumbling age. And yeah, you get to be. I mean, and look, there are stuff from that I still appreciate. Like Sloan is an amazing character. Yes. The, um, Another character who has come into Star Wars in a big way. In a big way. Yeah. Very, uh, uh, but she's such an important figure in uh, mm-hmm. Imperial politics. Now, apparently the whole ride, uh, yeah. which I think is crazy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so. I don't remember this at all. So mm-hmm. it really sh- told, shocked me when I did the research and you had told me of like, oh yeah, he's an aftermath. I'm like, really? So if you're okay. So as someone who read all three of the aftermath yeah, books the... when they came out, you know, uh, the reason that this character stands out is not because his stories in the book 
are I mean they're like three pages a piece. So like yeah. he has like less than fifteen pages total between the three novels. Right. Like it's not like it's a big part of the story. What's notable is that he is wearing armor on Tatooine that is described as Mandalorian armor as right. if it was burned and marked by acid. Right. Shortly <laughs> after, after the Battle of Endor, right? A, a, so the suit of Mandalorian armor we know from uh, Return of the Jedi ends up in a place full of acid. Yes, exactly. So you see kind of what we're getting at here, right? This is why that character stood out in my mind and why I assume in other people's minds and why I assume he's here. It's not because of the story that is written about him. It is because he is the owner of Boba Fett's armor. Right. Now we're going to talk about all three of his stories because he does pop up in all three aftermath right. books. And just to clarify this, if you haven't read any of these books, um, these will be spoilers for these little interludes, but not for the books as a whole. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the books are written, all three of them, as one big, long, cohesive story with a team of characters, but there are small interludes placed every couple of chapters that take you around the galaxy. In the first book, it's really showing the crumbling of the Empire. Here's what's happening on Coruscant. Here's what's happening mm -hmm. in Theed on Naboo. Here's what's happening on Tatooine. And that is where we find ourselves meeting Cobb Band for the first time. So the very first story, and I will tell you, I went and I reread all three of these. I you know, got the books off the shelf and found mm -hmm. them. So if you're going here, I am reading from uh, the first story from uh, the first Aftermath novel, as we said, sure. 2015. Uh, the hardcover copy, this is page 297. So if you want to okay. go and check this out on yourself, if you have a first run. And uh, the reason I'm also pointing out that I'm pulling from this copy is because there are a few misspellings uh, that we're going to talk about I find kind of I found kind of fun and interesting. Okay, interesting. Okay. okay. So um, the first story here takes place. There's a man named Aidwin, and he is trying to negotiate with these Jawas on Tatooine. Mm -hmm. Show me your good stuff. Show me the back room. Show me the really high-valued goods. He knows they have them. He's heard stories that Jawa Sandcrawlers are like these fortresses that have these back rooms that have amazing goods. But keep the good stuff in the back. Yeah, exactly. He can't get them to make that connection. Like, he can't convince them to show him the good stuff. Now, Edwin is a member of the Red Key Mining Company, mm -hmm. who is a new mining company on Tatooine. And as we'll learn in a minute, mining company is just a fancy way of saying gang. Well, yeah, I think the biggest thing to put it is in the Outer Rim, this is a mining company like the Old West, where the people are like, yeah, you live in our mining town and then you use your mining bucks to buy the mining stuff for your mining house for your, you know, like they are consortiums. They're, they're a, they're a criminal syndicate. Yes, absolutely. Probably they're legal, but a criminal syndicate. Yes. And in Jabba's absence, right? Jabba has recently been blown up. And so in his absence, the, this mining company has come into town. Yeah. Cause you've got two power vacuums that are about to form on Tatooine. Mm -hmm. The underworld collapses in on itself because Jabba and most of his in, most of his inner circle are gone. Yep, and then you have the Empire is going to fall very soon, and <laughs> that's also going to create <laughs> a power vacuum. Well, already, yeah. I mean, the Empire, the Death Star blowing up would have already happened. At this okay, point. I didn't yeah. know if it was. Yeah, okay. the Death Star blowing up would have already happened, but the Empire has not technically. Fully fallen until Jakku, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. That's how I would interpret it these yeah, days. Yeah, they're, they're crumbling and then they yeah, are... Yeah, they're falling apart. The Republic has won or is winning. 
Uh, it's the but turning yeah. point. But anyway, so what we have here is we have this man trying to get this, these goods from these Jawas. His boss has sent him here. This guy named Lorgan has sent him here, who is in charge of the mining company, to get weapons and mining tools and stuff from the Jawas. Mm-hmm. And as he's trying to negotiate, feeling like it's hopeless, a man kind of announces himself from behind, clears him his throat. And uh, I like this. He's described here. I wrote this down. Okay. He's described as, uh, let's see, where is it? Um, an angular man. Uh, where is it? I literally wrote this down specifically because I wanted to call it out. Here we go. Angular fellow, leathery skin, pinched eyes, amused smile. And he introduces himself as Cobb Van. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he is just described as wearing a long cloak. He does not have his armor on or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, he introduces himself saying, oh, you must not be from around here. You know, yeah, I, I, I can tell. You know, with the Jawas, the, the real trick is you got to buy things, you know, maybe about 10, 12 times, you know, buy something a little bigger each time. And eventually you'll come back and they'll show you the good stuff. You got to earn that loyalty card. They have this little yeah. punch. They punch <laughs> out a hole every time you visit. Exactly. And as Aidwin gets fed up and goes, oh, whatever, I'll just leave. I'll go figure this out. Go try my luck in Aspa or Pelgo. Uh, Vanth goes, well, just hold on a minute there, stranger. I'll help you out. I just so happen to know how to negotiate with these fellows, and we can make that happen. So after a, a few little talks and Aidwin kind of thinking himself, well, I'll let this local hick, you know, help me out. I'll t- I don't have any <laughs> problem taking advantage of this guy. They finally get into the back room, revealing all of the goods of the sand crawler. They find weapons and equipment and droids and parts and all kinds of things. It's like a magical like thrift store. You know, you got to sort through. And mm-hmm. as they're going through the boxes, Aidwin uncovers a trunk that is filled with Mandalorian armor. And the armor is described as a little worn, looks like it's been pocked and burned by acid, mm-hmm. but armor nonetheless. And Adwin is very happy. He found something he's looking for, something that can bring power to their mining company. And Cobb looks at him and goes, you know, I actually think I'm going to be taking that from you. Uh, I think that's going to be going home with me. me. And as a recently appointed sheriff of these parts, this is something I'm going to need. And so, of course, the other character here is saying, you know, what is this? No, like, you know, you're not a legitimate lawman. Like, I'm taking this. And this is where Cobb reveals that I know who you really are. I know that what these mining companies actually are. And you have no place here on Tatooine. And then they have a, you know, a little quick draw moment. Cobb shoots him in the shoulder, Mm -hmm. takes the armor from him and says, no, I'm not going to kill you. You leave here. Go tell your boss. You're not welcome here on Tatooine anymore. Yeah. And that's the end of his first story. And so, as you can see, a little bit of a different story about how he gets the armor than uh, what we see in The Mandalorian. It sort of weaves and stitches, because in The Mandalorian Mm -hmm. episode, we basically, Cobb is describing his backstory and talks about the fact of he's in that bar in Moss Plego when... Pelgo. Pelgo. Is it Pelgo? Mm Mm-hmm. Moss Pelgo. Also known as Freedom Town. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's at the bar, and they have been, you know, grinding out... an existence out here in this town and paying huge tariffs and taxes and stuff to the empire. And so everyone in town is celebrating as the empire is overthrown. We see the destruction of the Death Star. We know the emperor empire is going to be on the run. It seems like, you know, people um, are, are celebrating. 
And then this mining company comes right into his town and starts taking it over. They're like, hey, um, the emperor is not going to protect you anymore. Um, so we're going to take over your town. Mm-hmm. And starts shooting everybody. And mm-hmm. it just so happens that Cobb, you know, gets his friend, the Weequay bartender, out. They try to just sort of get out of town. They get separated. Cobb runs over to where the mining companies like the the speeder Speeder. they came in on grabs a uh container and just runs he just runs out to the desert grabbing what he can just to hopefully uh survive a cantano yes he does i saw you looking for that word i know i was trying to yeah i was trying to think of it it's an ice cream maker and it's full of silicax crystals he finds himself wandering through the desert, almost dead, where the Jawas, luckily at the last minute, pick him up. He's able to trade some of his crystals for a skin of water, along with a set of Mandalorian armor. And the scene we see is him pointing at it, where it's sort of like tucked into mm-hmm. a storage space. It's almost like up above, like it's kind of like, you know, like up above, like a, where a clock would be on the wall. And so what I could see is if you want to headcanon and put them together is I would see it very much as, like, Cobb has decided he's going to go back to town. You know, he's been saved, mm-hmm. and he's like, I got to go liberate my people. And then then he sees this, you know, mining guy here. While he's maybe living amongst the Jawas while he's still recovering from, you know, his exposure. And I could just see, he's like, hey, friend, let me tell you what's going on here. And then he's just like, oh, you're a mining son of a... I hate you guys. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get... I'm going to... Feel real dirty thoughts about you. And then when he finds the armor, he's like, huh, I was eyeing that up too. Must be important. If you want it, it must be really important. And I think maybe you could just say that at that moment, he's like, you know what? I'm going to start getting my payback to the mining company with you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, what's interesting about it, because you can look at this as like, okay, we have these this character who's now introduced into film canon that originated in a book. Right. And we have these sort of semi conflicting stories that have very similar details, Mm -hmm. but a few different key plot points. Now, to your point, I absolutely agree. They can all fit. It can literally be we saw some of the story and didn't see another part of it, right? Yeah. Now, the other way to look at it, which I think is fun, is that Cobb is lying to Din a little bit about his origin story. It's based Mm. on the truth, but he's embellishing a little bit. He didn't kill one minor. He killed four of them in the bar. You know, it it could be that, too. And it's not that one has to be right or wrong. It's not that we have to know the exact details. It's that it just makes it that much more fun to talk about. Are you saying that some of that could be true from a certain point of view? I think that's exactly what I'm saying, Mac. Now, of course, we know that the meeting with Din Djarin is about five years later from this moment we're talking about here. So, you know, that's five years that the story can get conflated and change, you know, and uh, the legend can expand. This guy has now had five years of being the sheriff of these parts And, you know, his ego might have grown a little bit, Um, even though I think we'll see he definitely feels like a nice down-to-earth citizen of the galaxy. But before we get too far away, I do want to point out that in the uh, printing of Aftermath that I have, you know, that hardcover, uh, his name is misspelled as Vance twice. Oh, just two consecutive sentences. Yeah. Instead I think his editor, Vanth, the Vance. word um, autocorrect, probably is to uh-huh. blame there. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, for sure. But uh, I thought it was worth calling out because uh, I thought a, that was funny. As a guy who's like hip deep in uh, National Novel Writing Month and writes sci-fi, man, 
Spellcheck hate fantasy names. They Absolutely. hate when you put words that look kind of like another word. I have a character <laughs> whose name is Throp, T-H-R-O-P-P. Yeah. It wants to turn into Thorpe every single every time. Every single time. Yeah. So I I think that's hilarious. <laughs> I think so, too. Uh, I'm sure it was fixed in uh, future editions. I'll have to you know, go hunt down a paperback copy and find out. Yeah, you never know, right? <laughs> you never know. All right. So let's talk about Cobb's second aftermath appearance in in uh life debt the second novel so this story starts out with malachili the rancor keeper from jabba's palace who is wandering the deserts of tatooine now that his rancor is dead and all the other beasts have died in jabba's palace he feels purposeless and lost as he wanders around you know he stayed at the palace as long as he could um but eventually the food the water ran out there were rumors that another hut would be sent to replace jabba and take the throne but it never happened well as he's wandering through the desert he finds himself being pushed into the sand and held down in the sand with a gun against his back by members of the Red Key Mining Company again. Mm-hmm. And as he's being threatened by these two thugs, they empty out his belongings onto the sand. They take what little he has. And as they're about to kill him or leave him for dead, uh, a blaster bolt rings out and then another, and both the thugs drop dead around him. Malakili looks up and sees armor that, Makes his stomach turn a little bit. He feels like he's seen it before. But the man inside doesn't uh, match, you know, the person. It looks a little bit different than what he remembers. Mm -hmm. And here we have our second appearance of Cobb Vanth. Cobb introduces himself along with a Twi'lek associate of his named Isa Orr, who has a damaged head tail. Want to call that out? Since uh, in case we ever go back to Mos Pelgo, maybe we'll meet her. (laughs) But, uh... Um, basically he, they learn, you know, he asks, you know, it tells him about Moss Pelgo about Freetown and says, you know, it's a place where good, honest people can come and work and be free from the tyranny of these big governments. And basically if you come over here and if you have a service you can provide to the town, you can have room and board, you can live with us, you can become part of our society. And Malakili basically sadly says, well, I used to be a trainer, but all of my beasts are dead. I'm a failure, you know, just sort of being down on himself. I lost my favorite rancor because this stupid kid in black came in and just jabbed us bone in his mouth. He didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve the door falling on him. Yes, and that's right. They actually call that out, too. He says, uh, you know, a, a, a guy got lucky and a door fell on my rancor. And, you know, that same kid got lucky again and blew up Jabba's sail barge, you know. Uh, it's a really good detail to that story. I love it. And, you know, Cobb kind of looks at his associate, Isa, and they look at each other and say, well, you know, if you could help us out with some Rontos we've been having some trouble with, we could find a place for you in Mos Pelgo. Mm-hmm. And he perks up at this at the thought of having a purpose again, of having this place. place in his, you know, in his life. And uh, then they also reveal that they have a hot child that they would like his help with educating. Mm-hmm. They had captured the hot child and are basically holding it because they're trying to install another regime. You know, the, the yeah. bad guys are trying to get another hut onto the dais of the throne in Jabba's old palace. Uh and Cobb doesn't want to let that happen. So they have this hut child and they say, hey, Malakili, if you can help with our Rontos and with our infant hut, you're welcome to stay. So quick question yeah. here. 
I'm sure there's nothing to, to prove it, but how long do huts take to go to maturity? I have no idea. Because if it's really, really long, that could be the hutling that Jama has. Oh, it's definitely possible. We, we know, thanks to the child, that some species have really long maturation periods. <laughs> we do know that. That's a thought to think about. So anyway. So that's the end of the second part of Cobb Vance's story. You want to talk about the third? Let's do it. So this comes from Empire's End, the third book in the Aftermath trilogy. And this is sort of the conclusion of his story. We find ourselves in Freetown, Mos Pelgo, and members of the Red Key Mining Company are dragging Cobb out of the, you know, out of the structure, out of the buildings, out into the town square, out into the, you know, the, the road. And um, he is basically under attack by the entire mining company is there. Uh, Lorgan, the, the leader of the company, is there. And basically he's saying, hey, you messed up. You should have just gone with the way of things. You know, you should have just let us have this because now we're going to kill you. We're going to enslave all these people here. We're, we're going to end up with it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to completely decimate this town. And this is the moment where it's revealed that on the back of Cobb's neck, he actually has a slave mark, revealing mm -hmm. that he was at one point a slave, presumably on Tatooine. Right. Maybe, who knows, even with Jabba's palace, you know, we don't know. Right. Um, I also want to point out here that um, in the previous story, there's something I forgot to say that was really oh, important okay. that I just want to backtrack to before we go any deeper. Uh, it is said that debris from Jabba's sail barge fell down and injured injured the um, pit of Carcoon. It injured the Sarlacc. And oh. that parts of it had been uncovered by the sand. Uh, you know, uncovered on you know from the sand, and that uh, it had been like parts of it had been cut open and exposed by sand people and scavengers and stuff like that. And so I wanted to point that out because with the way the timeline is looking right now, mm -hmm. that means that the sarlacc and the armor and all that, Boba Fett probably got out of the sarlacc pretty quickly. That. Yeah. Pretty relatively early on, um, because, Mac, you and I were talking a little bit about the fact that maybe the way Boba got out of the Sarlacc was the crate dragon that we see in the Mandalorian right. eats him, eats the Sarlacc, Cause we, cause we know allowing that, Boba to that escape. That dragon eats the Sarlacc, and you were bouncing around. You're kind of like, well, maybe that's the one from the cocoon. And I'm like, I don't know if it's exactly that, but like, it would make sense that that would be yeah. an out for him, right? Yeah, but I um, think if we're sticking with what we learn about in these novels... That probably is not the case. And the thing that I think we do know is that Boba Fett couldn't have been in it that long because the paint on his Besker armor is not eating all that much. Yeah, the room. armor is not that worn away. Right. Um, okay, so here we find ourselves back in uh, Freetown, back in Mos Pelgo. Uh, they never call it Freetown in the show, do they, in The Mandalorian? That only is in the novels. No, by however many years later, they must have just gone back to it or... Yeah. Or the Mandalorian calls it that, and they just go, with, "Oh yeah, well yeah, that, that town too." Yeah, absolutely. Know. So we have, uh, you know, our our, our friend, uh, our friend uh, uh, Cobb here out in the streets. He's, you know, he's confident though. He he does not seem worried. And just when it seems like he's about to get executed, a giant bantha, bigger than anyone has ever seen, ridden by a giant Tuscan 
breaks <laughs> through the gate and starts killing all of the members of the Red Key Company, you know, trampling mm-hmm. them. Shoot, the Tuscan is shooting them, you know, with his uh, skilled marksmanship. And basically, very quickly, the town is able to sort of overcome, you know, this oppression. And all of these mining guild members who are there, um, well, they get killed or get scared away. Yeah. Um, and this and, is enough. Red Key is kind of like, yeah. okay, this town isn't worth it. <laughs> yes. And it is then later revealed, like, Lorgan is like, how is this possible? Like, how how did this happen? How could you have the Tuscans working with you? And Cobb reveals that, well, um, you know, they don't like slavers much, so that didn't help. And then he's revealed that Malakili helped the Tuscans recover a pearl from a crate dragon, and mm-hmm. that they also, Mos Pelgo, Freetown, gives the Tuscans water from their mining operation. Right. So what we can assume here is that sometime between zero and one years after the Battle of Endor, mm-hmm. Mos Pelg- uh, you know, uh, Cobb Vanth rises to authority in Mos Pelgo. The, the mayor, sheriff, yep. marshal. He sort of overcomes the Red Key Mining Company in that first year. Yep. Right? And that's why his story in the Mandalorian TV show, we can say, is a little bit ambiguous and maybe a little bit kind of combining all three of these stories into one, right? Yeah. And so, you know, not or only shorthanding we... them, at least. Yeah, absolutely. So what we have here is this character who, you know, creates an alliance with the sand people who frees this town. And then for some reason over the next four years, their alliance with the sand people sort of falls apart. Right. right? Well, and you could see that them becoming, you know, friends with them. And then something happens where they do something that makes them despicable to the townspeople again. And the townspeople feel like hurt by the fact of like, we had a deal. Yeah. Like and it's interesting. They can't be trusted. They, they can't, you can't make negotiations with those people. <laughs> Exactly. So what I'm wondering is, is there something about the armor? Is there something about, you know, Cobb getting this power that at first he has these good intentions? He runs the mining company out of town. And then, you know, over the next couple of years, he becomes a little too big in his own boots. And Mm -hmm. it takes the Mando showing up to kind of remind him, like, here's what helping other people is about. Here's what happens when you work together. And him giving up the armor to Mando so symbolically and easily is him kind of saying, no, I am on the side of the good guys. I am, you know, remembering my history. And what I think to think about is I think Cobb Vanth is a person who has risen up from terrible circumstances and he is the leader of the people. We see that in the town hall Mm -hmm. scene of Mm -hmm. Mando where, um, you know, he's just he gets the people on board enough just by him throwing his weight behind this whole thing. The Mando sort of has to like give it a nobility to it. Cause he's just kind of like, come on guys, we can do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the thing about it is, I think the symbolic handing of the armor is like, I don't need the armor. I, I, I remember I led these people and I, I, I did the right thing before I had the armor. I can do the right thing after the armor, you know, is, is sort of what I read that as, mm. um, that and, and didn't, We'll, we'll kill him if he doesn't hand over the armor. So well, that too. it's also self-preservation. That Cause, too. Because we see Cobb Vanth in this episode. He appears in the doorway, the batwing doors yes. of the cantina. And basically we're for a second because he's so backlit going like, is that Boba Fett? Because you can see that you can see some of the hallmark, the mm-hmm. green and the yellow of that armor. You can see the dent that is like unique to uh, Boba Fett's armor, which the more we've learned watching the Mandalorian of what Beskar is. How do you dent it 
what horrible thing happened to that that dented it? <laughs> you need a mud horn. Because we we saw the plates. Yeah, you like we saw the Mandalorian get hit by the mud horn, and like that's the only thing that hurt it. <laughs> like, yeah. So it traced tremendous amounts of force. It does. It does. Um, and uh... but then you start seeing red in his underclothes, and then you see like his pants. He doesn't have the bottom half of the armor, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not Boba Fett. And he walks over and he sits down and he orders two drinks and he's like, I guess we need to talk. And then he takes the helmet off and you're like, you are no Mando. That's not the way. At least not one who's been involved in the culture in the last small amount of indeterminate amount of time since we decided we were going to do that. Which is a whole Um, different conversation. We know Mandalorians didn't always care about keeping their helmets off. uh, Yeah. Uh, so we learn very quickly that this is not maybe the person who Din has been seeking. Right. And he basically says, uh, I'm going to need that armor back. Just take it off. We don't have to have a problem here. You seem like a fine guy. And what I love Cobb said to him is, so I see you in here and I've never met a real Mandalorian, but I've heard the stories. (laughs) Probably don't take too kindly to me wearing this armor. And I think, you know, this is probably going to be it. You're going to kill me, or I'm going to kill you. (laughs) I think this is a situation where only one of us is walking out of here. Am I right? (laughs) But then I see the little guy, and I think, hold on a minute. Maybe there's something different about you. And I love this whole time, baby. You know, the child is just playing with a pot. Yes. It's it's a great moment. Um, But anyway, Cobb is basically like, you know, do we really have to do this? Can't we work something out? And Din is basically like, well, no, I need the armor. And so they're about to have a showdown when all of a sudden a graboid appears. Really? Yeah. You don't think it's the sandworms from Dune? No, I'm you always going to go reference? graboid first. It's pretty big for a graboid. Always. I'm just going to say. Oh, I don't know. Remember Al Blanco? I, what was that, three? I don't know. That thing could have like seen a the Winnebago first in it. Like, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a big boy. That's true. So it upsets and we see it just run straight through town. I think very kindly of it. It went down Main Street, which is just sand. So it didn't ruin as much of the town as it could have. It, you're absolutely right. It was very, very um, considerate. Considerate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So we see that there's this giant sandworm, and we're informed that that's a crate dragon. Yeah. Um, and uh, we went through this talking about it because we remember the crate dragons that are in the stories of like the myths and fables. Yeah. And we kind of realized like, okay. So on Tatooine, there's two types. There's the the canyon yep. crate dragons, and, and this the, is a greater. Yes, this is about as big as they get, we think. This is the big of the big. So this is a terrible thing that this, basically, it's decided that, hey, you're within its hunting grounds, and any of your livestock, any of mm-hmm. your equipment is always going to be in danger from this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we get the idea that Cobb sort of describes as like, yeah, can you help me kill that? It's been a problem for, we don't know how long, but... Enough of a time that yeah. maybe the dourness that's going around town where everyone seems a little beat up, it seems like after the mining company, we probably did okay for ourselves. And then this little monster came through, <laughs> and it's made our lives a living heck since. Yeah, and I love how Din's first uh, reaction is to like, you know, I'm just going to go blow it out of the sky. I'm going to take the ship up above it and just shoot it out of the ground. No, 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 we thought good. of that. and We're not that hayseed out here. Like, we, you know, we... We, we thought about that. It's not going to be that simple. And I love how he's like, I know where it lives. Yeah. Like, what have you followed at home? Like, what have you sold them cookies? Like, what well, is I going feel on? the idea again here is that Cobb's like, look, I thought of that. I thought of a bunch of things. I went to its house. 
it's a bad house. I don't want to fight it there. Like, I haven't there. come up with solutions, but I've been working the problem over a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what else do we see from Cobb? You know, we see that he drives around on one of Anakin's old speeder engines, one of his old pod engines. I still stand by it. I'm not sure if it's from Anakin's, but, but the same engines Anakin uses. I've been looking at those fins at the front, and they yeah. don't look the same. But anyway... He's using a pod racer yeah. engine. I mean, the only difference that I saw is that one of the three yellow fins is missing. Well, they're also uh, pulled back and mounted on, and they're red. Yeah, yeah, they they Which definitely have don't changed. have the um the uh, they're air not braking. air brakes. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but no, I mean it, ha- it. It's too identical. It's too identical. I don't think it's questionable. Well, my thing is. Anakin scrapped those from somewhere to make his pod race. Yeah. Racer. So I'm just saying like, it could be the same airspeeder engine that Anakin worked mm-hmm. over. You know what I mean? I, it's I'm possible. just saying Anakin didn't build it from scratch and designed it in his head. of like, it's going to have yellow fins and they're going to be used as air brakes. And they're going to put this cool, like world war two propeller thing. I don't know what war two is, but like I'll put this <laughs> propeller cap on it. Like, my opinion on it is Cobb Vanth found Boba Fett's armor. He's already found enough cool stuff that's way too important to Star Wars. If he finds two, that's ridiculous. I don't know. Tatooine's not that big of a place, and it's had a lot of history. And it's been what? How many years? 20, 25, like 30 We're years. We're also talking about, like, yeah, that's a 30-year-old crapped 35, engine. 35, yeah. I, I'm just, it's, I, all I'm saying is the rich guy that bought it it's gone down. He left it somewhere. It got boosted in a parking lot. You know, it was left out overnight and Cobb the hot wired boys it. found I it. I just think, And they yeah. bought it from Durga yeah. the Hut. And then he yeah. bought Yeah, no, I, I get yeah. what you're Duquesne, coming from. Duquesne. Oh, Duquesne. Uh, brothers, who, who else? Um, Duquesne boys. The Irving, the Irving boys in that. And then the Pike Syndicate uh, had it for a, a short time. And then yeah. they gave, gave it over yeah. to, you know, the... The point of the matter is, <laughs> we're pretty sure that if it is Anakin's pod racer engine, there is a nice little short story of how it got from Watto <laughs> all the way over <laughs> yeah. to this guy. So we go there and we see that Cobb Vanth, while he is a simpler creature, as far as like he doesn't have tons of combat training, he doesn't ha- have the Mandalorian's mind for tactics, he doesn't have the wherewithal to deal with the sand people. He's still a resourceful, smart guy who does have his town's interest at the forefront of his mind. He's like, I want to keep my town safe. We worked really hard. I mean, he tells, you know, Din the whole story of like his version of yep. how miners came to my town. I fought him off and I'm going to keep fighting off anything yep. that fight comes to my town. Yeah. Fighting for the little guy. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and, and again, like you said, maybe that head has gotten a little bit too big inside that Mandalorian helmet, but like. He still wants to do right by his people. And so we see like when, uh, you know, we get, we're getting close to the, where this um, crate dragon's hiding. We see a bunch of the, the Tuscan dogs. Mm-hmm, for episode two. They're looking all feral and stuff. Yeah. And he's like, we got to shoot him. We got to shoot him. And Din's like, no, no, put your blaster away. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> and then Din just starts talking Tuscan. Yep. yep. And, and then the dog comes over. And he pets it. Yeah. It's uh, great. And they build this relationship of like Din, uh, because of previous adventures on Tatooine, it's just, he has a better community with understanding of, hey, now you got to live off the land. You got to know the people of the land if you want to survive here. Mm-hmm. I've been through Tatooine a lot. And at some point, I, you know, I've, I've made friends with the Tuscans. They're 
they're primitive people, but they're a people. Mm-hmm. They 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 want the same crap you want. They they want to kill be, it. They want to kill it. They want to be safe. They want to you know. They need this, water. Yeah, they need water just like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that Cobb is has very little patience for the Tuscans. Which, again, would imply that if we follow the Chet Wingdig's stories from Aftermath did happen, pretty much as they're stated, something happens between those two points that sours them on the Tuscans because, yeah. obviously, they must have had some negotiations before them, which is maybe why Cobb yeah. is not, like, Well, maybe Malakili openly... left. Maybe Malakili left with the hut, and it's a or. That's why they're not in the Mando, and that's, that's why negotiations with the Sand People fell apart. It was Malakili was the linchpin. That, that Cobb is not openly hostile to the Tuscans, but is so dismissive of them yeah. and their tradition. I'm not drinking this horrible stuff. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just leads to, uh, the adventure we see in chapter nine, which ends with Cobb doing a good job of getting his town to help the Tuscans to find a way to kill this dragon, to bring their people together again, to overcome an overwhelming odd. And, he, uh, you know, he proves his kind of nobility and, and what he is. And Din's like, yeah, you're a good guy. Now get out of here. And slaps him on the back and sends his rocket pack off as <laughs> Din does something completely insane yep. to try and kill the crate Dragon once and for all. Which he does. <laughs> and we sort of end with Cobb being very thankful and kind of feeling, I guess, humbled and put back into where he's supposed to be, which is the mayor of this town. Mm-hmm. And he hands over the armor. And hopefully to be seen again. Hopefully their paths will cross again. And I'm sure they will. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. How great was that big red scarf he wore in between the helmet and the chest plate? It looked really good. Didn't it look great? It looked really good. Oh. It's, it's, it's cut from a similar cloth as the one that Poe wears in episode nine. Absolutely. You, you throw the... some fresh green paint on that Boba armor, we just go real bold red and green. I think that's the way to go. Now I really desperately want to know. What do you paint Beskar armor in? What what's like the most yeah. durable paint? Is it Dura paint? I don't know. We got to find. I out. I need to know. Event, I I'm pretty confident, but that by the enamel? end of season two, Mando's armor will be painted in some way. We'll see. I, Maybe not I'm all not of it, lie. but pieces. That of it. Imperial straight Beskar armor, that just that steely cold yeah. gray is. He does I, need a pop of color. Like he needs a cape. I think he will get some color eventually, and it might just be a one shoulder pad or the chest plate. Oh, you know what it is. So, so, right. He he got his he got his hood ornament at the end of last season. He got that yeah. mud horn. His, yeah. his crest has appeared to him. Yeah. So, like I said, he needs more stuff to add to that armor. We need to follow the trend of of season one of getting the armor upgrades in the tech tree of the video game that this show is. So, Absolutely. What does Boba Fett have? Well, he's got Woogie Scalps. Don't wear those. Those are offensive. Uh, but he does have, like, a cape. So I could see, like, a cape, some color on the Vam braces. Some, like, as he goes through his adventures, yeah. that armor will get more and more customized. And like you said, he came, came out with, this is the factory blank of Amanda armor. And it gets personalized as the wearer settles into it, if you will. It's only a matter of time. Oh, we got nothing but time for more Mando stories, and it's yeah. going to happen, and more Cobb Vance stories. And I'm really glad that we are going to be doing a Mando topic every week for the next eight weeks. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. It's going to be awesome. But let's wrap up this one. I think it's time.
right, we are bringing home yet another episode of Star Wars All In, a, uh, a kind of fun one. Um, we're, we, we talked some politics, we talked about the, the Supreme Chancellors, the last two Supreme Chancellors of the Republic, um, and uh, kind of kicked around. Uh, it's kind of interesting, again, there's stories to me because of like prequel era novels and comic books and stuff, they're a little weirder to me because I'm like, yeah, canon's pretty light for those two gentlemen at the moment, that yeah. part of their lives. Yeah, but we're going to get there. Oh, we will. We're going to get there. I really, really want to explore that kind of rise of empire well, power. The, the Amidala books, the Master and yeah. Apprentice books, like we, we're finally like Disney's like, okay, the prequels can have content too, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. We'll start taking bought, pitches from the... <laughs> I just bought a Kit Fisto action figure Isn't that, great? that came out in 2020. Anything is possible. It's it's, it's pretty great. And then we started our, 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 you know, month and a half, two months? Two months. Two, two months, months of Mando. Mando. <laughs> two months of Mando. And then after that, we will be full on into the season of giving. So we have yes. a busy year ahead. It, yes, we do. But we have seven more episodes of Amanda to look forward to. And on the day this episode comes out, episode two, sorry, episode 10, chapter 10, will be available well, the day after two, tomorrow. Episode two, chapter 10 of The Mandalorian. <laughs> oh, it's going to get fun that. as we go. Uh, and that's uh, Yeah, that'll be coming out in two days. And, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to throw some speculation stuff out. Oh, hit me. Since we have the time, we're time locked here. We're going to be wrong in two days. Probably. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so this episode was great and mind blowing and wonderful. And, uh, the guy at the end, I'm like, wow, this guy's got a scarred up. He's got a gaffy stick. He's got a slug thrower rifle. Like he's some crazy Tuscan. I'm like, are Tuscans human underneath? And he turns around and I'm like, oh, a guy's got some like, kind of like wicked wear to him. He, he's been through some stuff stuff. And I'm like, he kind of reminds me of someone. Don't know who, who. I'm like, man, I would have lost my mind if that was Tamara Morrison. Then the credits come come and I like totally just blank on seeing his name in the credits. And I sent you a text of like, yeah, man, I finally caught up to Cause you watched it the, in the morning. I had yeah. to work. Uh, and I'm, I'm just like, man, that was really cool. Too bad. That guy doesn't, you know, it doesn't look exactly like Tamara Morrison. Cause so I guess it's not Boba Fett. And you're like, that is Tamara Morrison. And I flip back and I watch it. And then I'm like, Oh my God, maybe that. And then I see the credit. And I'm like, Oh my God, that is Tamara Morrison. That's Boba Fett. And I was just losing it. Because for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because he just didn't have his hair or I just haven't seen a recent picture of Tamara Morrison or what. But like he didn't read to me as him right off the bat. And now I'm like, okay, Boba Fett canonly survives. This has got to be him. Who else is running around with Django's face? I mean, he could be a clone trooper, but I doubt it. Yeah. Um, And he's been running around, uh, you know, maybe 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 Din has something of his he needs back. (laughs) It just blows my mind that you had to, that you had that revelation like that. That is uh, like that adds an extra stroke. layer of fl- of fun to uh, <laughs> to your viewing to your first viewing. Um, I uh, I was I was pretty confident. I didn't I wasn't expecting it because you know as as Din is riding away on his speeder bike and the aspect ratio changes a little bit. I assume <laughs> we're heading for the credits, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you have that that moment, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I was pretty confident even before he turned around. That's where that was headed. But uh, it was it was the gaffy stick that was really throwing me off. Yeah, because he's yeah, got. Yeah. So all right, we're gonna say our pet theories right now. So 
Well, go ahead. Yeah, because I don't necessarily have a pet theory. Oh, I guess I do. We talked you about do. it. You do. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Okay, you go first. Though. Okay, so. I forgot about that. My pet theory is that Boba Fett sees this other Mandalorian, and that Mandalorian collects his armor, and he's got to go talk to this guy. So I suspect that in Chapter 10, at the very beginning, we're going to have this, what I hope is a brief meeting of the two of them. Uh, and by the way, if we have none of this, I'll still be very happy. If that's just a tease and we're done. But I don't think this show is constructed that way. No, I don't either. Um, and I just see it as like, you know, um, Boba Fett confronting this guy and saying, hey, you know, that's my armor. And him going like, wait, did you know, you're Mandalorian. And he's like, I used to follow the creed. What about now? No longer. Yeah. And because that's because I think he's gone native. I think he's living off the land, which is why he, if not a Tuscan, like yeah. in culture he's adopted a lot of their ways as he survives out there in the desert yeah um and i just see it as like he gives um din what he needs he gives him that you know that child it belongs in the blank system like he's gonna give him some waypoint something that like but if it doesn't he just knows this it's not important he's not some he's not part of your spiritual quest and he was told a secret knowledge to give you like just more of just he recognizes that species and says, you need to go there. Yeah. And that's it. And then he walks out of his life, and Boba Fett goes off to other adventures. Yes, other properties. That's my pet theory. Yeah. I mean, that, that I think we're kind of similar on that, and that I think he'll be, a, I don't think we'll see this in Chapter 10. I think it's going to be, um, you know, strung out maybe through the first half of this season, where eventually Boba Fett, you know, we'll see, will be following him throughout his adventures. Um, eventually, we'll catch up to him. And they'll have a small fight, you know, because you, they're Mandalorians. This is how they handshake. People want to see that, you know, people want to see that fight. Um, they'll have that. Boba will explain, that's my armor, kind of like what you said, but could potentially just become more of a mentor character mm-hmm. for Din. Uh, but really what I think, I think you're hitting the nail on the head of, oh, yeah, I fought a Force user once. Yeah, you were mentioning You know, that I as... know about the Jedi. A Jedi killed my father. I think we're going to get something like that, especially because, remember, in our in our character, in the Mando's mind, right, a race of evil enemy sorcerers. Yes. Yeah, an evil enemy sorcerer decapitated my father in front of me when I was a child. Yeah, you because... Know, it, there's yeah. lots of possibility there. Because the only thing we've meant that, that's shown in the Mandalorian's context, the show, was in uh, Chapter 8, where the armorer refer to the fact that moving things with your mind, that sounds like these these sorcerers that fought Mandalore the Great. Mm-hmm. Um, because one thing that's hard to believe, I think sometimes people forget, like, the galaxy at large thinks that the Jedi were these weird mystics that might have a place on, on Coruscant, but no one knows about them. You know, no one's writing stories about them. No one cares about them. They're not this big, important thing that everyone's respecting. Right. Except for people who have interacted with them directly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And by the time we're talking about the, the agents of the empire have completely turned it that not only were these characters little more than myth, But if they did anything, they tried to take over your government. They tried to usurp the Supreme Chancellor and cause a coup. And that's why we put them all down. And that's why there's a standing order to purge the galaxy Mm -hmm. of these people. Mm -hmm. Traitors. No easier way to get people to hate you who are on your own side than to be a traitor. So it makes sense that the Mandalorian is basically getting context of Jedi of when 
hundreds if not thousands of years before our story, the Mandalorians have fought many wars mm-hmm. with these Force wielders. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's established in um, Clone Wars as mm-hmm. well, the finale where they show we have this holding chamber for Force wielders. Again, reminding you that when the original age of the warrior ways of Mandalore they fought the Jedi and other force wielders mm-hmm. in battles because mm-hmm. they still have relics from that time. Yes. I think it's only a matter of time. I really think we will get more of this story. We will get more of the force wielder um, being the antagonist of the story. I think that's going to be a continuing trend throughout oh. this season. And eventually Mando is going to meet a force wielder who will sort of help change his mind about what that was, give him more context for who this child might be. And as fun as it was a tease um, in episode eight, this story is also going to be the story of the dark saber. We need to know how he ended up with it. And we know the dark saber from rebels is the first blade that a Mandalorian Jedi well wielded. Like it was his lightsaber. So, there's a point where the Mandalorian and the, the Jedi cultures intersected and something peaceful happened because a Mandalorian joined the ranks of the Jedi. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, the, the child is the next intersection of these two people because this child is being shown the way mm-hmm. by, you know, he's a foundling at this point mm-hmm. of the Mandalorians mm-hmm. and Moth getting you know, Moff Gideon has this relic of their people. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that is a point that's going to happen at some point. So like you said, there has to be a point where Din is going to learn more about who the Jedi were Mm -hmm. and what the Jedi ways are Mm -hmm. and how to, um, how to continue the journey of his surrogate son as that creature starts learning more about the force and Mm -hmm. the Mandalorian way. We've never been closer. This is the closest we've ever been. And hopefully, by the time we do an episode next week, we'll have more another piece of this story to talk about. But until then, I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. And until next Wednesday, may the Force be with you. This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and the respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2020.